Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This One Nation Conservative government has been given a powerful new mandate to get Brexit done. I will discuss with our party to ensure there is a process now of reflection on this result and on the policies that the party will take. This is so unique an outcome. There's been a party that's gone to the country for the fourth time of asking and increased its standing in Parliament. There is a clear desire and endorsement for the notion that Scotland should not be landed with a Boris Johnson government and ripped out of Europe against our will. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, a special hour-long election results programme. I'm a very, very tired Sebastian Sarek. <laughs> Good afternoon, I'm Caroline Hepke. Yes, the Tories have won their biggest majority since 1987 under Margaret Thatcher. It really was a huge result for the yep. party and really a massive change for the country. Uh, yeah, I mean, redrawing the electoral map, getting some certainty finally. Let's just have a little listen to what the Prime Minister had to say as he addressed his supporters early this morning. With this mandate and this majority, we will at last be able to do what? There we go. So a bit of clarity on Brexit then. We'll have a talk throughout the programme about the route ahead, really, as we look to be exiting on uh, on January the 31st. Investors, at least, are pleased. Assets lifting across Europe from the pound to the euro to the UK stocks. It's what they've certainly been looking for for a long, long time. Absolutely. And we've got a cracking lineup for you this really hour. Uh, Mandu Reid, the leader of the Women's Equality Party, because we have a record number of female MPs in this uh, electoral cycle. Also, Bloomberg's head of economics, Stephanie Flanders, will be with us to break down what we can expect from this new Tory administration. And Alan Wager, the research associate at UK in a changing Europe, will also be here to talk us through or the implications for Brexit, the UK-EU trade negotiations. We've got a lot of angles covered. We've got a lot to talk about. Let's get right into it. Joining us now live from Westminster is Bloomberg's Roger Hearing. And here with us in the studio is Bloomberg Opinion's Therese Raphael. Therese, let's start with you. You watched the whole thing. Sum it up for us. An unexpectedly strong showing then. What won it really for Boris Johnson? Was it the anti-Corbyn vote? Was it the pro-Brexit vote? Talk us through all the issues. Yeah, so I think most people will say that two things won it for Johnson. Brexit won it for Johnson. People really took to his message that uh, the get Brexit done message, in fact, it cut both ways. So it cut for the Brexiters who you know, clearly want to see their, the, the 2016 mandate carried out. But it also worked for moderates and Remainers who may accept the 2016 vote and just don't want the argument anymore. So that was one thing that worked. Clearly, the second thing that worked for uh, Boris Johnson was he was very lucky in his opponent here. Jeremy Corbyn was, uh, you know, a historically unpopular candidate. His message was wrong. His, uh, you know, entire sort of uh, record on foreign policy worried people. The anti-Semitism uh, row within the Labour Party has cut through to voters, I think, in a way that Labour really didn't expect. And even the economic policies that Corbyn unveiled, he threw the kitchen sink at this very radical socialist offering. That 
that didn't work. But I would argue there was a third thing that worked for Boris Johnson uh, in this election, and that um, is that he was seen as the politician of change. And that is kind of surprising given that he's been a senior member of the Tory party, which has been in power for nearly a decade, had four governments, and yet Johnson was able to portray himself as the change politician. Mm, Really fascinating. Uh, Let's get to Bloomberg's Roger Hearing. You've been standing outside uh, the Palace of Westminster, so you've seen all the politicians uh, coming uh, onto the green for their interviews, and uh, we had some Tory uh, politicians on air this morning on Daybreak Europe sort of sounding absolutely joyous. Just give us a flavour of this result. Well, yes, I think joyous, but also absolutely frozen, because I have to say it's been the most startlingly <laughs> awful weather down here. Talk about a December election problem. Uh, but certainly, no, the, the Tories we've been speaking to I, uh, have all been extremely happy, as you would expect they would be. And this is interesting, because we have seen the Tory party hugely divided in the recent past. You know, they, they managed to alienate and indeed get rid of a large number of quite prominent uh, Tories, several of whom have been calling uh, for the voters to support the opposition. So this was a triumph on so many different levels. And I'd add one extra element to what Therese was saying, her, her three points. I'd add a fourth one, which is the squeeze. Because at the beginning of this campaign, we were talking about how the Lib Dems or the Brexit party would split votes in such a way as to put pressure on the Tories, particularly also potentially on Labour. And that really was the dog that didn't bark. If you look at the figures, the Lib Dems clearly didn't do well, but the Brexit party didn't either. So in the end, that was the dog that didn't bark. But then, Roger, there were more winners. In Scotland, the SNP, a strong message there for a second referendum. And in Northern Ireland, we saw those in favour of reunification. They're also playing through well. This is going to put some level of pressure on Boris Johnson, isn't it? It certainly will. I mean, the Northern Ireland thing is absolutely crucial. You're quite right, Sebastian, because that is the, if you like, the the Achilles heel of the Brexit deal, because you've got the two borders that Boris Johnson envisages, one down the Irish Sea and one between Northern Ireland and the Republic. And how that's going to work and the difficulties it will cause for business people in Northern Ireland, quite apart from anything else, is a very moot point. The DUP were completely alienated, of course, from Boris Johnson before all this, but they have been one of the big losers. For the first time, I think, in recent history anyway, there are fewer unionists representing Northern Ireland in this building behind me than people who are nationalists or uncommitted. And that is going to make a big difference. And Scotland, of course, that's the other thing. SNP didn't have a clean sweep, but they did extremely well. The pressure for a second independence referendum, I would say, is almost unstoppable, despite the fact that Boris Johnson has set his face against it. Mm. Turning to Therese, uh, the points that Roger is making there, there is some uh, you know, some strains around Brexit, of course, with, with Northern Ireland. Do we actually end up getting a softer Brexit deal now because Boris Johnson has such a big uh, majority, uh, b- but also because of the separatist threats? Obviously, Scotland you know, voted to remain. Yeah, as, as the... As the polls were still open yesterday, I was thinking that if this were to be a majority of, say, 10 votes or 20 votes, we are right back uh, where we were when Theresa May was trying to get things through in that the right of his party would be able to sort of hold him to ransom. That is you know, clearly not the case. He has a you know whopping majority and all the authority to go for a softer Brexit within his own party, but he also um, could drive a, a harder bargain with Europe in the sense that you know he, he's not going to have to go back to Parliament and and you know try to uh, scrounge for those votes. Um, he will be, I think, of these two unionist 
issues. I mean, let's just say it was a very good night for English nationalists. It was a bad night for the British Union. Of the two issues, Scotland and Northern Ireland, I think the Scottish issue is the more pressing um, in the short term because the SNP are going to want that vote. Now, he may be able to delay things until the Hollywood uh, the, uh, elections in 2020, but you know that, that's really on the horizon. Yeah, indeed. Well, of course, we've got uh, now speaking, actually, the head of the SNP. Uh, so this is Nicola Sturgeon, who is hailing the emphatic victory for her party, the Scottish National Party. Uh, so commenting on the election results, she's saying, Sebastian, that Scotland has yet again said no to Brexit. Yeah, that's going to put Johnson in, tr- in a tricky position there, really. Uh, remember, it was about 60-40 the first time round. Very much a resounding no once again, as she said. Uh, And that further shows the splits in the country. There's so much talk from him about reuniting the country. Remember, Scotland is part of that. That's not going to be easy. Uh, Roger, talk to me about the north of England and the Midlands. We've seen a very big shift in the electoral map. A lot of seats that have never been Conservative before have gone to the party. Is this here to change or is this a case of vote lending? What's your sense? Well, first of all, I just have to give you a kind of cultural feeling. I mean, I'm I'm pretty ancient, it has to be said. I remember being <laughs> under Thatcher. And, I mean, the Red Wall didn't break then. It has broken now. Names I never thought would ever be considered as a Tory uh, possibilities, County Durham, around that sort of area. And it's gone. I think it's a, it's a huge change. And it may be a cultural change in the sense that we may be seeing a realignment. Uh, now, whether that realignment will follow, perhaps, as one person suggested, that the towns will go for the Tories and the cities will go for Labour in future, that kind of thing. Or maybe not even the Labour Party. Maybe some new version that will come that will represent that sort of interest, that sort of ground. But uh, it's easy, I guess, to be a bit apocalyptic about it but but to answer your question Sebastian I think this is more than simply a cosmetic change. Okay uh, Therese what, where do you think that leaves the Labour Party the Liberal Democrats also the, the leader of the Liberal Democrats uh, resigning Joe Swinson uh, again a kind of generational shift a young female leader resigning the other two roads failed spectacularly here the far left some would call it and the anti-brexit road they both failed yeah i mean i think the 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 liberal democrats you know they had a, a they were beset by a number of errors uh not least their decision to go for a revoking brexit policy but i think what we learned here is that you tactical voting does not work when the uh, when the two parties just simply can't agree with one another. So had you had a Labour government, that a Labour party that the Lib Dems could support in government, we might have seen uh, something different. But your question about the Labour party, I think, is the key one. I mean, this is Her Majesty's loyal opposition. As I was listening to Labour politicians throughout the night, you could just see the fight in that party over what went wrong, with Corbyn's defenders saying it was Brexit and others saying, no, it's not just Brexit. It's Corbyn himself and Corbynism and this radical agenda. There's now going to be a leadership battle royal in that party, but the structure of the party and the way they choose the leaders really stacks it in favor of the supporters of Corbyn and McDonald to begin with. And so it's going to be very difficult for that party to change in the way it needs to to win back some of these voters so in a way the Tories you know they've won the 2019 election I think they're already going to be feeling pretty good about 2024. 
So with less than a minute on the clock, Therese, is Corbynism dead? Has it had its day? I think Corbynism should be considered dead and buried. I don't think that means it will be considered dead and buried by the Labour Party. But, um, you know, it just may take them another defeat to learn. Yeah, well, look, the turnout also that we were closely watching, uh, given that Roger's freezing it out there outside of Parliament, and we were all, you know, in the rain yesterday. Actually, the turnout was strong, and the majority for the Conservative Party really quite stunning, uh, the largest since the 1980s. So our thanks to Bloomberg's Roger Hearing live from Westminster and also Bloomberg opinion columnist Therese Raphael for joining. Let's talk about one of the other big issues going on, Caroline. Yeah, indeed. Uh, this is the record number of female MPs who have been elected to the House of Commons uh, in this general election. Some 220 women have won seats. It's up from 208 two years ago. Uh, but don't cheer too soon because actually female MPs will only make up 34% of the Commons. Uh, and that's why I'm pleased to welcome Mandu Reid, who is the leader of the Women's Equality Party, who joins us now. Very warm welcome to Bloomberg Westminster. Thank you for joining us. So, look, you put up candidates uh, in opposition to MPs or prospective parliamentary candidates who you felt, uh, you know, their record on women's rights or women's issues were particularly negative. And you feel that you've had some success in, in that sense. Um, our specific tactic was actually to um, target MPs who had unresolved allegations of harassment or violent or aggressive behaviour towards women on their record. So we wanted to highlight that issue because when you're looking at the experience of women in Westminster, it's really, really important to understand the backdrop and environment within which they were operating. So we targeted five MPs, as I say, with those unresolved allegations before a single vote had been counted. Four of those, because of the pressure we applied, actually stood down. And the final one, um, Ivan Lewis lost his seat last night. So for us, for the Women's Equality Party, uh, you, you, you could say our, our general election campaign was a, a resounding success. And what about the statistic that Caroline alluded to a moment ago, a record number of female MPs? Was it a good election for women in general? Um, I think representation is really important and it is one of the goals that the Women's Equality Party pursues. However, um, you, you know, 34% is not where we need to be. Mm -hmm. It's an improvement and that's a positive thing. It's also worth looking at how that breaks down um, within Westminster. So the Tories actually have only returned 24% of their MPs um, as who are women, um, whereas the Labour Party have done really well and over 50% of their new cohort of MPs are women. So there's, there's a mixed picture. But what you have to remember is what happened in the run-up to the election. Mm. Several senior MPs, cabinet-level MPs, talented, brilliant women stood down and cited, many of them cited abuse and harassment as their reason for doing so. So we have a situation where there's lots of newcomers, and that's fantastic, but actually they're kind of bottom of the pile. It'll be a while before they progress and develop to those senior levels, to those cabinet-level positions. Mm. And so, yes, there's something to celebrate if you're looking at the raw numbers, but it's a much more complicated picture. And for women to really have an impact and the impact we need them to have in the context of a damaging Brexit that's on the horizon, we need women all throughout the system, junior, senior, across the board. What did you make then of the manifestos? Uh, and what do you think of the Tory party manifesto in particular, obviously given the landslide uh, victory that they have had? Uh, it was seen as a set of manifestos with little content, you know, specifically aimed at women, I think it's fair to say. I think it is fair to say that. And when you look at the centrepiece of the Tory manifesto, get Brexit done. Hang on a minute. Brexit is not going to be um, impact neutral on women. 
Brexit is going to result in women bearing the burden of the economic consequences that this country has to uh, shoulder uh, as we um, leave the European Union and, and uh, in January. And none of that has been factored in. Has there been an econ uh, a sort of impact, uh, equality impact assessment of Brexit, looking at the gendered impacts of it? No. And it's irresponsible to do that in a climate where so many of the services that women rely on are already on the back foot, have already been decimated and women's unpaid care work is just assumed um, to, to be something that'll prop up the economy and and, and keep everything but going. hang on a second, we had Joe Swinson, the head of the Liberal Democrats, yep. youngest uh, ever leader, female yep. leader, uh, you know, we've just come out of a phase of having a second female Tory Prime Minister, yes. you know, doing reasonably well compared to, let's say, other European nations and global uh, developed countries at least. So we've had two Tory female prime ministers out of how many prime ministers? It's a tiny sample. Um, those are breadcrumbs. But you have to benchmark it against other developed countries. I mean, you know, it's only 70 years since the, we got the vote, right? Um, I think... It's really an oversimplification to zoom in on the few women who have risen to the top in hostile condition, conditions, who have had to um, endure uh, the, 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 the environment, which actually creates, it makes it much more difficult for, for women to sort of fulfill their potential. They're not welcomed in these, in these environments. And so I think to point to those two examples doesn't really help us analyze the way politics is dysfunctional when it comes to serving women's needs. So how do you address that? Because an election is a democratic exercise yeah. and at the last election we saw Theresa May do so badly and Boris Johnson do very well based on a very similar strategy and then of course this time we saw Joe Swinson get an absolute battering. I mean that is exactly why if you're talking about um, the campaign we run in the Women's Equality Party we recognise that the environment um, the structural barriers that women face need to be addressed in order to get us to where we need to be to get us to a place where men and women are sharing power equally and that's serving um, society as a whole. And so, you know, if you don't address the fact that uh, one in five people who work in Westminster have reported that they've been harassed, mm. um, you're not creating a level playing field for women. You're having a situation where women have to put up with, um, uh, you know, a working environment that actually isn't as hostile to men and yeah. so women have to have more resilience and that takes its toll you know the women who stood down many of them prior to to the election those are women who had served maybe um, nine or ten years the men on average who stood down you know voluntary of their own accord they had long careers in parliament so women are being hounded out and men are leaving on their own terms and we are all poorer because of that you know Joe Swinson she lost her seat that's that's the voters saying no thank you to her but that's not because she's a woman uh, right, right. Know, exactly. And look, I mean, these are depressing figures that, yeah. that, that, you've, uh, um, that you are highlighting. But I suppose, again, on the flip side, could one not argue that at least with this uh, Tory administration coming in, it's the end of the austerity years, which many people, are, again, have raised the issue that it has disproportionately affected women. Mm. So at least, you know, we're back into spending mode, which might help to lift many of those women and families you know, perhaps out of yeah, out of more difficult circumstances. Any economist worth his or her, and it's usually his worth <laughs> worth their salt, um, is going to tell you that um, 
the prospects aren't bright and rosy when it comes to um, dealing with the immediate aftermath of leaving the European Union. And when things aren't bright and rosy economically, what that does is results in a situation where women are carrying a disproportionate burden. So you can say that it's um, post-austerity now, but we're entering a new phase where um, we've got economic challenges that haven't been um, analyzed for the impact they're going to have on women. And the manifesto says so, nothing so about look, that. So why, when all of these statistics are so dire, yeah. why have we had so little impact in terms of changing the political system? I mean, does it mean that we have to have, you know, entirely balanced uh, lists for, for candidates, which we did not see? Uh, I mean, gender balanced candidates, mm. which we didn't see in the last election. You know, what is it that you would be pushing for for uh, for the administration now I mean, to do? The bigger picture is a proper electoral reform, so proportional representation to make sure that our representatives and our parliament is responsive to the people. I mean, look at look uh, what at, about a female leader for the, for the Labour Party then? Yeah, I think that's um, I think there's a good chance of that happening this time round. There's some strong women who will be in the running, but you know something I got to say, there's something that makes me a little nervous about that because um, the idea of finally the Labour Party this time round putting a woman at a woman at the helm makes me nervous because of the glass cliff phenomenon she will be inheriting a really really difficult set of circumstances mm. a bit like Theresa May inherited right immediate after the after the referendum and um, I think you know we need to look really carefully if a woman does take the helm at the Labour Party what sh what challenges she's facing so what about a compromise then what about a job share because it's something that's been touted <laughs> yeah and it's the Green Party that does they it do already it. Um, and then you get that gender balance and also you have easier living arrangements in terms of childcare and all the rest of it, it opens up those options. Look, I'm all for creative solutions. I'm all for breaking um, down some of the um, assumptions about how politics should work so that it's more inclusive and more accessible to more people. Absolutely. I, I, I think the Labour Party needs to have a, a long, hard look at its constitution and the way it operates, because actually some of the some of those kind of maladaptive behaviours have resulted in their downfall. They're so tribal. They really struggle to collaborate. Um, it is often seen as a hostile environment for women in that party. So they got a lot of work to do. Okay, so Labour has a lot of work to do. What about Jo Swinson? Was her downfall due to sexism? Earlier you sort of said no, you discounted that. But but just explain, you don't think that that was a factor then here? Um, I think the whole, uh, the Lib Dems entire general election campaign uh, clearly didn't go to plan, right? Um, and I think a lot of miscalculations were made um, in terms of the strategy that they went for. I mean, I remember shortly after Joe was elected as leader and she went, you know, all guns blazing into her party conference, full of beans, full of positivity, um, really believing, um, I guess, the Lib Dems' own hype um, a little bit there. Uh, and actually probably overplayed their hand um, but she's not alone responsible for that they will have been a team of strategists I know she's she she is ultimately accountable as the leader mm. but I don't think it's to do with her being a woman the fact that the Lib Dems ma made some really huge strategic errors and what about and Boris Johnson very very quickly yeah. there's a lot of talk about him having a woman problem doesn't seem to have come through in the election result yeah um, I've got to say I am quite astonished 
um, at the um, majority, you know, Boris's Tories have managed to command Why? in this election. Um, I I would have thought so much of the stuff that um, Boris Johnson's associated with would have turned voters off in, in sufficient proportion so as to at best result in them having a slim majority. It's But I think what one of the things that happened is a little bit like the, the Trump campaign in 2016. He reached this sort of Teflon stage where it didn't matter mm. what people said or what people reminded the public he had done, some of his attitudes, some of his approaches to doing things. And yeah, he became invulnerable. Mandu, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That's Mandu Reid, leader of the Women's Equality Party, talking us through the election result here on Bloomberg Westminster. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Let's get right over to Roger Hearing. You're standing by. Who have you got for us, Roger? Well, with me uh, is Francis O'Grady, General Secretary of the Tip Trades Union Congress, TUC. Francis, welcome. Thanks very much for being with us. Um, I guess you're not in celebratory mood this morning. This is a deeply disappointing result for Labour, but more importantly for the ordinary people that Labour was promising to transform their lives for. Well, not least the trade union part of that, because trade unions are a big part of the Labour movement. They gave firm support to Jeremy Corbyn. Was that a mistake? I think it's important that the trade union movement has a political voice. Uh, We've always understood that's important, that we needed to uh, win good rights for people at work. Um, But clearly it's disappointing. The the only thing I would say is that, uh, you know, the pressure is on Boris Johnson now. This could end up being the shortest honeymoon ever. Well, you say that, but he's got a whacking majority on which he's got to deliver. Uh, You know, are we going to see real investment in the North? Are we going to see the NHS saved? What kind of deal is he going to negotiate on Brexit? And will it be one that protects people's jobs? All right, that's what's to come. But but let's let's actually focus on what has been, because that is important. This was uh, a situation in which Jeremy Corbyn promised an awful lot. He didn't deliver, at least as far as the voters are concerned. We know that now. Do you think now we need to have a change of pace with the Labour Party following a non-Corbynist line, if we can put it that way? What we do know is that many of Labour's individual policies were incredibly popular, from uh, bringing rail back into public control to banning zero-hours contracts and uh, funding the NHS. So I think the problem here wasn't the individual policies within the manifesto we could you know question whether well, they should brexit have been sharper prioritization brexit wasn't clear, was it? well we know that labor lost in both brexit uh, both leave and remain voting areas so i'm not sure it's as simple as brexit 
I think people were tired of it. I think the conservative uh, message of let's get it done certainly resonated, but I'm not sure it's as simple as that because we've still got that big debate about what kind of Brexit. Well, yeah, OK, let's part Brexit and say it was Jeremy Corbyn. The number of Labour candidates I've spoken to, I'm sure you must have the same, who said this was the problem on the doorstep. People didn't like him. Well, without doubt, uh, leadership was a factor, and I think uh, Jeremy Corbyn himself described himself as a Marmite leader. Um, and, of course, none of our political leaders are doing too well in the popularity stakes, but clearly it should be a time where Labour doesn't descend into disunity, but instead takes a, a long, hard look at what did go wrong, listen to the people who voted uh, for the Conservative Party, who should have been natural Labour supporters and learn some lessons. All right. One of the lessons is perhaps having a different leader. Who would you like to see leading the Labour Party? I think it's far too early. Well, <laughs> to come get on, into Jeremy that. Corbyn has already said he's not taking the party into the next election. He has, and he's also said that we need a period of reflection. What I what I do know is that we need a leader who. Uh, has the values of, of Labour in terms of looking for a fairer society and a decent economy that can fund our public services. Perhaps a woman. You were the la Labour's the last part major party not to have a woman as a leader. Uh, a again, Labour has the opportunity within its leadership team, uh, and I think it should Would certainly you like to see take Surely, you? the opportunity of making sure there's a woman in the leadership team. But I think the big issue here is we need somebody with vision who can inspire trust and confidence in our heartlands, uh, what should be our heartlands, that they will deliver the real bread and butter changes that people want to see in Britain today. Because, you know, inequality hasn't gone away. And I can tell you this, I think the Prime Minister is going to have to deal with some of these difficult issues Yeah, but too. you're going to have to deal with him. That's the point for the next five years. You and the trade union movement, you've got someone who isn't naturally an ally, how are you going to deal with them? Well, we always seek to represent uh, working people's views, whoever's in government. We've always done that. Uh, you know, I've met with Conservative Prime Ministers before. All we ask for is a fair hearing, and we think we've got a good case to make. So I look forward to meeting the, the new Prime Minister, and I hope planning he listens to, do that? to us. Oh, well, I've already written. <laughs> <laughs> beer and sandwich, or not perhaps not my beer, but sandwiches maybe, in Downing Street? Um, I, I would hope that any Prime Minister of the country recognises it's important to speak to the leaders of what is a movement of six million people and still growing. All right. Francis O'Grady, thank you very much for joining thank us you. here. That's Francis O'Grady, Secretary General of the Trades Union Congress, speaking to me here live outside the House of Commons, where I think there'll be more people that she will not be sympathetic with in there than there have been in the past. So uh, a, bit of a, a bit of a job for you to do. Francis O'Grady, thanks for thank being with you. us. And back to you, Caroline and Sebastian. Thank you so much. What you're hearing there live outside of Westminster uh, and listening in to that conversation is Bloomberg's head of economics, Stephanie Flanders. Welcome to the programme. Thanks for joining us. Uh, look, what do you make of this then? The Tory landslide, biggest majority since 1987. The TUC, uh, the Trades Union Congress there, going to have a very tough time of things, no doubt. It's been a massive loss for Labour. Yes, and I think that's obviously, I mean, a lot of the focus uh, today is on just the sheer 
extent of the Labour loss. I mean, as in, in 100 years, a party that's been in opposition for nine years has never lost seats. So even just that alone, that single achievement, let alone um, the fact that it is by far, you know, it is the worst result um, that uh, that Labour has achieved, even worse than, than Michael Foote, who had previously been the sort of byword for, for failure. Look, I think that, I mean, the issue for them, um, and I think they'll be debating this, is, you know, why they lost, but also where to go from here. I think a lack of clarity in their message was probably more important even than the substance of their proposals. You know, that, that is why there will still be a debate about what the direction of their proposals should have been. They've been skewered by geography. You know, we knew they had a problem, that they weren't, uh, if you like, extreme enough for many uh, in the, for those in Scotland, um, but they were trying to hold together Remainers in the South, but also those Brexiteers in the North, and that has, has skewered them, and it worked much more into Conservatives' favour than maybe some people had thought. And then if you think on top of all that was the particularly unpopular uh, leader um, but it was the the cocktail of all those things which they're now going to have to unpick I'm not sure you can unpick a cocktail um, <laughs> but they are now going to have to think about what the because I think it's not just as simple as this was a very left-wing agenda maybe in the 80s you could have said well that was a very left-wing manifesto it wasn't the party part, country wasn't ready for it it's a lot more complicated things going on not least the way that Brexit has just driven the party into into shattered and what about some of these more radical proposals because during the election they polled quite well do we have to discount that now or is there still appetite for it maybe from a new Labour leader yeah I mean that's what I think is interesting and maybe and I think one of the, the sort of dismay that you heard this morning particularly from northern MPs or ex-MPs uh, was that you had that the Conservatives had managed to win over these disgruntled working class voters in the north who have plenty of things um, to be disgruntled about with the word Brexit but no explanation of how Brexit Brexit was going to help with any of the things that they're concerned about. Uh, even when they talk, the Conservatives talk about more spending, they're clearly going to have to deliver on more spending on the National Health Service, on infrastructure, all of these things. But the amounts are very small. I mean, they have, we had a debate on um, the Stephanomics podcast about, with the head of the Institute of Fiscal Studies, about the substance of the fiscal proposals. And the funny thing is that the manifesto, the Conservative manifesto, was had almost nothing in it apart from Brexit. It was a very yeah. modest increase in spending, both on the investment side and particularly on the current spending side. So how Boris is going to deliver to these new MPs is a real question. So so what's the, the top line path for the economy from here? Because on one hand, you've got Boris Johnson promising all of the spending, but then we just have Mandy Reid from the Women's Equality Party talking about the economic hit for Brexit. How do those two things work together? Well, and that's once again, so we kind of, the days like this, we always end up, we're talking very long term, you know, next election, mm. <laughs> what's going to happen, but also what's going to happen next week. Um, he clearly has Brexit to deal with. Uh, it won't be done in January. No one ever thought it would be. Um, but it is true that, you know, when I say how hard it will be for him to deliver to those working class voters while still maintaining kind of a traditional conservative focus, uh, that's he's made it even harder for himself with the kind of Brexit deal that at least at the moment seems to be on the cards. The deal he did with the European Union is a pretty hard, is a harder form of Brexit, more damaging, particularly for the manufacturing sector, um, potentially, 
then Theresa May's deal was the people who will be immediately hit by that will be people working in those factories, often around uh, the northeast, around the, exactly the places that have just voted Conservative. So that is something we will see how those two things measure up. But the bigger the bigger majority on paper gives him capacity to be more flexible in doing that deal and maybe even taking longer to agree it with the European Union. Yeah, indeed. Mr Johnson, of course, thanked those people who might not traditionally uh, vote uh, Tory uh, for their vote and sort of pledged to keep their trust, as it were. Look, when it comes to the markets, though, there seemed to be a great deal more panic about the Labour Party win even than Brexit. But do you think that overall Boris Johnson uh, administration and the current Conservative Party is actually going to be pro-business? Because you know, there's been quite a cautious welcome from some of the business lobbies this morning. I mean, it's a bit of an imponderable, but I'll ask yeah, you. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think if the Corbyn platform had had been slightly less comprehensive <laughs> in its desire to reorganise the state, the role of the state and, the, and, and to put taxes onto business, then business leaders would have had more of a challenge thinking, who do I really want to win? I think going into this election, um, there was uh, not only the, the, the sort of extremity of some of the Corbyn proposals, but also the fact that Labour was very unlikely to get a majority. So you're going to be looking at much more uncertainty, even if you didn't have a Tory victory, um, has led them being, some would say, surprisingly positive about a definite Brexit, which may be quite a hard Brexit um, under under President, uh, President under Boris Johnson. Um, but I do think uh, when you look, you know, a lot of the estimates, before the election, funnily enough, even though we knew there was a lot of city suspicion of Jeremy Corbyn, actually saw the economy larger under Jeremy Corbyn in the next few years than under Boris Johnson, in part because of the mm. extra spending that he was doing and because of the softer form of Brexit or indeed no Brexit. All Not right. on the cards now. Some great analysis there. Thank you so much. Stephanie Flanders, Head of Economics here at Bloomberg. We're hanging in there, aren't we, Caroline? Just not long now and we can all go to sleep. Uh, after that huge victory for the Conservative Party, the biggest majority since 1987, back in the days of Thatcher, we're now very much looking to a Brexit that will happen by January the 31st. Uh, and we've had European leaders speaking as well. We heard from Chancellor Angela Merkel over in Germany. The talks on the future relations are going to be complicated, she says. Yep, no prizes there. Uh, the EU Council President Charles Michel urging the UK Parliament to approve that Brexit pact quickly, no doubt about that. Now they have the numbers... He's also repeating the need for an EU-level playing field with the UK. The question there is, are they going to get that? Are they going to be willing to, to give that? And then the EU Commission President, Ursula von der Leyen, uh, says it expects the UK Parliament to uh, ratify the Brexit agreement. She says the goal is close ties with the UK post-Brexit. And again, it's a question of, is this the sort of Brexit that Boris Johnson wants? We just don't know. Yeah, absolutely. Merkel also saying that the UK will be a competitor at our front door. So that will raise some eyebrows. Uh, and Ursula von der Leyen... Uh, also citing the need for the UK not to dump. So no UK dumping after Brexit. So that, again, when it comes to the future relationship. So look, sounding just a little bit more tense when it comes to the UK-EU uh, relationship, you know, matters must be resolved swiftly. Uh, but potentially, I, I sense these leaders very much looking to the UK being a competitor now uh, with the EU, now that we have this decisive victory of the Conservative Party and uh, Brexit it likely to be done at the end of January. All right, well, let's continue this conversation. It's fascinating. It's really the big issue here. What happens to Brexit? What form does it take? I'm going to throw over to Roger Hearing down in Westminster. You've got another guest joining us for this fascinating conversation, Roger. 
We have indeed, sitting down with me here in what is, I have to say, getting more and more freezing by the moment, uh, is Alan Wager. He's got a very nice and warm hat on. I wish I had your hat, Alan. Anyway, Alan's Research Associate at UK in a Changing Europe group. Now, how should we describe the group? It's, it's a think tank, basically? An academic think tank from King's College London. We, we focus on Brexit and uh, what's going to happen with Brexit. Indeed. Well, OK, good, good opening there. So... How does this change things in terms of Britain's exit from the European Union? Well, it means we're definitely leaving on the 31st of January. And, you know, we couldn't have said that this time yesterday, that that was the case. And it it gives Boris Johnson a great deal of room uh, for manoeuvre. He's got three options now, basically. He can go for a WTO, no deal, Brexit, on December 2020. He can go for a sort of bare-bones, stripped-back free trade deal, the sort that can be sort that can be negotiated within 11 months, or we can try and extend the process. But he said he won't. He said he won't, but Boris Johnson is renowned for his uh, flexibility as a, as a politician and as a political operator, I'd say. And maybe the fact that he has a, a majority, we think, of 76, means he won't have to rely on the people who might be perhaps most hostile to that, the ERG, etc. Yeah, I think that the ERG have, have lost their influence, as every other party has, as the Democratic Unionist Party Technically, has. ERG, not a party. We'd have well, the ERG, I mean, you know, <laughs> a party of sorts for a while. But yeah, they... they, they they uh, they've been absorbed into the into the into the Boris project. So whatever he comes up with as a solution to Brexit will have the vote of probably every single member of the Conservative Party in the House of Commons. And that's a completely different you know ball game to the sort of fractured politics we've had over the last three years. We're about to see a period of party discipline, homogenous parties, and and it's going to be uh, a lot easier for Boris Johnson in those circumstances to you know, bend and, and, and try and work out what's easiest and what's best for him to manage the economy, probably. So, Alan, early days, I know, but I'm going to put you on the spot. What do you reckon is going to be his route? <sighs> ah, I think he'll try and go down the route of uh, of agreeing a deal within 11 months and then maybe try and extend towards the end uh, of 2020 in a last sort of ditch effort, say the EU are being uh, difficult to negotiate with, as a way of sort of justifying the extension of that transition period to sort of soften the the Brexit, um, the, the, the impact of Brexit in the short term. So I think he'll sort of try and use EU tr- intransigence to ex- as, a, as a method to, to extend the transition period beyond December 2020. So uh, Angela Merkel just now, within the last few minutes, saying that the EU-UK future relationship talks need to go very fast, but that the short time frame will be the biggest challenge. But actually both Merkel and von der Leyen, uh, von der Leyen sounding um, a little bit tougher, I I suspect, in what they're saying, you know, talking about uh, the UK should not uh, you know, pursue any dumping when it comes to Brexit. So post Brexit, that there should be no, uh, well, I'm assuming trade dumping of various kinds yeah. alluding to. So it sounds like they're getting tougher, are they? Yeah, so that they'll sense this as an opportunity. The EU, just as in the last stage of the negotiations, has the power in the negotiations. It's the larger partner. It's flexible. It's, it, it doesn't have this deadline. So it, it will it will use this this self-enforced deadline uh, by the UK to to extract the the best possible uh, uh, deal with, between the UK and the EU, and that will be a suboptimal deal for the UK. And that's just the a matter of fact. And it's exactly the same uh, strategic problem that the UK. Uh, uh, faced when it when it when it triggered Article 50, it set itself an artificial deadline, and and we ended up being um, uh, um, 
losing out basically in the in, in the in the negotiations as a result, and that's what's going to happen here probably. But Alan, the interesting point now is that we have a period during which nothing changes essentially towards the end of this year um, in terms of relationship. We don't have a say in Europe, but we we essentially don't change the way we work. So the the economic downturn that could come from any of this we're not going to feel that for a while either are we yes we're going to have a period probably uh, of boris johnson maintaining even increasing his popularity he's on 46 percent of the vote now i mean he's going to leave the european union uh, on the 31st of january that'll obviously be a sort of triumphant moment for johnson and then there won't necessarily be that direct hit from brexit on the economy felt for another for, for another for, for, for another few years and for another, for another couple of years if, if he tries to extend the transition period. So it's win-win for Johnson here. But Alan, his p- message politically was get Brexit done and we know it's not going to be done on October the 31st. These talks are going to go on as, we, as we've mentioned. Are the public ready for that? Are they expecting it to be more straightforward? I mean, yeah, I, I work for a, you know, a Brexit think tank and, we, and we, 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 we say obviously, you know, Brexit is going to continue to be a, a, a key issue facing the UK government. It's going to define what the government does. But for many voters, when they hear that we've left the European Union, it's possible at that point that they then zone out of the process and the politics of it sort of drains away. So we might we have a situation where, well, that's perfectly right, and I think that's what we're, that's what you know. We, I would argue that you know, getting Brexit done isn't that simple. But perhaps if, if Boris Johnson can sell it as we've left the European Union, everyone might focus away, and it might move from page one of the news to to page eight or nine in the newspapers, and that's that's maybe what Boris Johnson's hoping for. Okay, this from President Donald Trump this morning. Congratulations to Boris Johnson on his great win. Britain and the United States will now be free to strike a massive new trade deal after Brexit. How possible is it that we can get a UK-EU trade deal and a UK-US trade deal? Well, as the, as 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 was pointed out in this election, and as you know, Jeremy Corbyn tried to use the NHS to, as a way of sort of instrumentalising this, this this problem. These two trade deals are going to be in conflict. If you're in the orbit of the United States, that's a very different sort of economic model to if you're in the orbit of the uh, the, the European Union. It has a very different regulatory space. You know, we use the example of chlorinated chicken, but it does work as an example. If you want to have a deal with the US, then you have the chlorinated chicken. If you want to have a deal with the EU, you can't have a backdoor to the chlorinated chicken. So it's a it's a real it's a real um, it's a real either or choice in a way, unless you unless you yeah, and, that, and that's the and that's the problem that's sort of facing uh, Boris Johnson. Is he, it, it probably politically, as he has promised this trade deal with the U.S. And if that doesn't pay off and that can't come to fruition, then then maybe that will be something that that, that can be uh, pinned on him. And Alan, what about the positions to negotiate? Uh, if you look at Europe, you've got this very public spat between Macron and Merkel. Merkel's weak at home. She's got the threat from the SPD. And in the US, you have an election coming up. So there's uncertainty on, on both sides. Are they in a position to, to drive this hard to Boris Johnson? Uh, I think they will be in a position, the European Union, because the European U- these, these, these EU leaders have largely outsourced the negotiations to the Commission, who will ha- have a lot more continuity within their political uh, uh, you know, environment. I, I, I get the point you make about Merkel and, uh, and, and Macron and, that, and the tensions that are opening up there. I mean, it, it, you know, the U.S. trade deal issue is, just isn't going to be uh, resolved and there isn't going to be a deal with, with Trump. So I guess it is, in a way, a bit uh, slightly moot what, what the outcome is in, those, in, in, that, in, that, in, that, in that contest. But I think, I think for, the, for the EU-UK trade, trade talks, they will, 
for the for the European Union, they, they they'll still have some continuity, and you know, Barnier is continuing as as head of those talks. So, so I mean, Alan, is there not a possibility in the end that, given as you say, that it might start going to being at the back of the newspaper rather than the front, that the people over there behind us and the civil servants down the road might say, let's have a Brino, let's have a Brexit in name only, let's actually change almost nothing, because frankly, that's what we all want. I don't think that, yeah, we'll, we'll have a softer Brexit than perhaps Jacob Rees-Mogg once, but I'm not sure that it's going to be politically possible to stay in the customs union or the single market. So if you said three years ago, is that Brexit in name only? It's definitely not. I mean, it's, uh, it's, going, to be, uh, it's going to be a pretty tough form of Brexit for the, Europe, for the UK economically. I, don't, yeah, I think we're in a situation where, uh, you know, it's, it's whether or not there'll be, a, there'll be a trade deal, it'll be a, it'll be a, quite a loose arrangement. All right, Alan. Thanks very much indeed Cheers. for doing that. Alan Wager there, Research Associate at UK in Changing Europe. Caroline. Roger, uh, thank you so much for joining us live from Westminster this morning. Just a final thought then as we wrap up this election special. Uh, Roger, just looking ahead to the timetable now, uh, when will we see Parliament actually sit now that we have the results? Well, that is an interesting question. I asked uh, Tobias uh, Elwood earlier this morning. He didn't know. But we do know that they want to get it through the second reading by Friday. So I guess that means possibly Monday morning. We'll, we'll watch and see. But at the moment, I think it's just too cold for anyone to come down here, let alone in Scotland. But we'll see. Perhaps they're all in their planes on the way back, all wrapped up and muffled up and ready to vote. So it's Christmas ruined then, Roger? Ah, for you and I, possibly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and for them, too. Now, I don't think they'll sit over Christmas, but we'll see. We'll see. Great stuff. Roger Hearing there live outside of Westminster. That's it for this hour of Bloomberg Westminster, our special election uh, coverage. Uh, really, this is a historic day for the Conservative Party. Biggest win since Margaret Thatcher. A trouncing for the Labour Party. And it comes down yet again in this election to a 2 horse race. This as we look to Boris Johnson and who he's going to pick for the cabinet. That'll be next. Yes, so many issues, not least to mention the future of Scotland, Northern Ireland, the north of England. You're listening to Bloomberg Westminster. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.